Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 160 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. As many of you will know, last week we held an excellent course on covenant epistemology with philosopher Esther Meek. And for the first few minutes of this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to give a few of their takeaways from that course. After that, they're going to move into discussing the text for the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here with Alistair Roberts and with Brian Motes. Uh, and today we're discussing the readings for the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. And this year in 2018, that's August 23rd, the readings for this upcoming Sunday are Isaiah 29 verses 11 through 19, Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33, and the first 13 verses of Mark 7. And uh, we'll get to those texts eventually, but uh, with Alistair here live, uh, we're very blessed to have him here for a couple of weeks to help us plan for a number of projects that we have uh, underway or that we hope to get underway very soon uh, for Theopolis and uh, also to attend the course that we had last week with Esther Meek teaching on covenant epistemology. Uh, It was a wonderful week. We had uh, the largest class we've had ever at Theopolis and it was also uh, one of the most, uh, it was the most diverse denominationally. Uh, We had a number of Baptists, uh, students from Southeastern Baptist Seminary in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina couple of students from Trinity School of Ministry. We had a couple of Covenant Seminary students uh, and then assorted uh, pastors and lay people from uh, various churches and parts of the country. And uh, it was a, a great week, very uh, uh, challenging uh, instruction, but also um, great fellowship, uh, a lot of new friends and a uh, spectacular talent show <laughs> on Thursday night. A shout out to, to Mike Shover, who is a pastor of a CREC church in Pella, Iowa, for uh, wrapping the uh, gospel according to Matthew. Uh, that's that's something we'll want to package, and uh, that, that'll make, that'll make the opposite's mark. So, Alistair, uh, any any thoughts from your angle on the on the class that we've just finished? It was quite a impressive week in many ways. I particularly enjoyed um, Dr. Esther Meeks style of teaching. She really engaged the class throughout. We split at regular intervals into what she called covenant epistemology groups, where throughout the week you're going through with two or three other people and discussing each of the topics of conversation, how these relate to your own live, lives, how you could apply them in the future. And that sort of engagement led to deep connections between the students, I think, more generally. One of the things I've always appreciated about Theopolis courses is by the end of the week, you feel that you have a connection with this group of people, Mm -hmm. that you become part of a shared journey. And I think that was particularly pronounced this week. Mm -hmm. I very much enjoyed it on that front. Well, I think that uh, what you're describing is um, partly uh, the phenomenon of shared suffering. Yep. (laughs) Everyone's in the same. Intensive is the right word. Everyone's in the same. Theopolis. Yes. Everyone is in the same, having the same experience of having to uh, 
concentrate for 12 hours a day for five straight days. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that brings people closer. Uh, there are a number of things that I, I pointed this out in the class, but a number of things that uh, really resonated with me, particularly she's, she describes knowing in terms of knowing ventures. Uh, knowing is a process of discovery. It's not about holding a certain amount of information in your mind. And as she described the process of coming to know, uh, so much of what she said uh, fit exactly my experience as uh, a researcher and writer. Uh, the, the idea, for example, that when you embark on an adventure of knowing, uh, you don't know for sure where you're going. You have some inkling that something lies ahead, you have, or you wouldn't start on the project unless you had some inkling that something was up. But uh, when you start, you really don't know what the destination is going to be. And you kind of slog through it. Um, she made the, I'm still kind of astonished by this point. She made the point that even though you don't, you don't know where you're going exactly, you still have a sense of getting closer. <laughs> that was a really striking yeah. point. I'm, I'm still processing that yeah. too. Uh, and even it sounds, <clears throat> it doesn't sound like it's possible, but that's, that, that's my experience as a, as a writer that um, I kind of, I can feel when I'm, when things are clicking, when things are uh, falling into place, uh, and I can feel when they're not. Uh, so you, you have this sense of distance and proximity to the destination, even though you don't know what the destination is precisely. And the other thing that was really rang true to me was uh, the idea that you go through this pilgrimage of knowing, uh, and the end point is the reception of a gift. You're, the sense that I have at the end of a writing project is not achievement. It's partly exhaustion, but it's also partly the sense of uh, having received something more than a, the sense of having achieved something. I, I almost can't remember how the, the project got finished. I don't know how um, the, the process itself gets lost, and I just feel like I, it, the writing is something that uh, feels more than something done to me or given to me than something that I've achieved. Perhaps the two points that really struck me were her description of what she calls subsidiary focal integration, uh, the way in which there are certain practices and habits and abilities that we've developed that we're not looking at, but we're seeing from. Mm -hmm. um, so your ability to ride a bike, you're not actually focusing upon that process. After a while, it's just it's part of your body. Your body knows how to balance on the bike. You've not developed some formula and you're not focusing upon that act of balancing. And the more that you focus upon that, sometimes it can be a destructive form of analysis and the practice and its natural character breaks down. But yet, once you've got all those basic things in place, you can see from those and do new things. Um, that focal attention on something new. And that, I found a very helpful way to think about some of the things that we do here when we're thinking about scripture. Mm -hmm that so much of what we're trying to develop are those subsidiary practices, those habits and behaviors, those instincts that you bring to any text. And then you're looking at that particular text, and as you see it from these particular practices and habits, this deep embeddedness within the world of Scripture, you can make sense of it in a new way. But these aren't things that you necessarily will discover just by looking at them. They have to be developed in you through things like liturgy, through learning from able readers, all these practices that take time. And that emphasis upon learning from people who have gone before, wise guides, that I found quite helpful too. Along with that, 
she talked very much about some of the dichotomies that we work in terms of. I was thinking during the week, particularly of my first encounter with James Jordan's work and my experience of the dichotomies that I had in my mind between theology as this pristine science with these abstract ideas and then scripture as this muddy, messy text where all these concepts were bound up in stories, in um, literary forms, and they mm -hmm. needed to be extracted from that, mm -hmm. distilled. And as they were distilled, you'd have the pure work of theology mm -hmm. which stood in contradistinction to the messy world of the text. Mm -hmm. And reading James Jordan's work in Through New Eyes, it was overthrowing that particular dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And I think um, Dr. Meek really highlighted some of the ways in which our understanding of the world, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of community, our understanding of God's truth is so compromised by these dichotomies that we bring to it. Yeah. And you, you have the phenomenon in biblical studies frequently of focusing, to use uh, Meek's phrasing, to focusing on the subsidiaries in a text. You, you, know, you do uh, detailed grammatical or semantic studies of the words that are used. You might look at the structure of the text, but all those are, in, again, in her terms, are subsidiary clues to what the text is actually talking about. And it's that movement from, from to, she kept doing the from to gesture. It's that movement from the subsidiaries to the focal, uh, to the focus point, the focal point that, going back to my thoughts, that's really when I feel that I sense that things have clicked into place. I think, I sense that there's a, some kind of breakthrough when all the small details of a text suddenly click into place and there's, there's a, uh, the, there's a focus beyond the beyond just the uh, the details. You have to do the detailed work. It's not that you're skipping over that, but if you're just looking at the clues, then you're not really doing what the text is intended to do. I think, I think too of uh, um, C.S. Lewis's essay. Is it uh, Thoughts in a Woodshed? Is that the title yep. of the essay where he's looking at the beam of light um, as opposed to looking uh, along the beam of light? And looking along the beam of light is what you want to. Uh, there's certain certain and, and Meek, Meek recognized this. I think this is another helpful point. She doesn't reject the idea of analysis or uh, there's a place for paying attention to the subsidiaries, what, particularly when you're trying to correct something. When you, you know, you have a, you're trying to correct your golf swing, you have to break it down and go over all the little things that you've been doing automatically for a long time. Uh, and there's a proper place for looking at the beam of light. Uh, but uh, the goal is to look along the beam of light. The goal is not to look just at the details of the text, but to look along the text uh, and uh, see that as a, as a, a it, provides a, it provides a way or perspective on the world. Her attention to the subsidiaries and the relationship with the focal, I found just in her teaching style, I think she brought a lot mm -hmm. of that to it. The emphasis throughout upon forming the class into a particular body that is apt for learning certain concepts. So a lot of what she was doing was eliciting from us all the examples of the ways that we have learned certain things, often very practical skills like riding a bike or learning how to chop wood or learning how to... Knitting. Knitting, yes. <laughs> all these examples help us to understand the more general process of learning. And then thinking more generally beyond that of when we get to theological notions and these sorts of ideas, you can form a community 
that shares a common focus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the yeah. things that we found over the course of the week, that we were not just a number of individual students, but we were increasingly coordinated in a common, um, in a common quest of mm -hmm. learning. Mm -hmm. the, learn the knowledge ventures that we were talking about early on were very much individual. But then as the week progressed, I think we had a greater sense of us being joined together in that. And part of that is also just any Theopolis course, the emphasis upon shared liturgy. That's mm -hmm. three points during the day. We have matins and sext and vespers, and it really joins you together in a group, mm -hmm. singing together, hearing God's word. I found that such an important part of what makes a Theopolis course work. Yeah, so the harmony between the way that she was teaching the class and the liturgical, uh, the liturgical moments of the week uh, harmonized, uh, harmonized very nicely. Um, we should turn to our text for the week uh, uh, and do some uh, subsidiary focal interpretation of these uh, texts. We've got uh, Isaiah 29, as I said, portion of that passage, Ephesians 5, and then Mark 7. Isaiah 29 and Mark 7 link up because a portion of Isaiah 29 is quoted in Mark 7. We'll get to that. But I wanted to start with the Old Testament lesson. This is in as much of Isaiah is concerned with the Assyrian crisis. Early on, you have some worries about the invasion of the Arameans or the alliance between the Israelites and the Arameans uh, who are trying to force Judah into an alliance against the Assyrians. Uh, but uh, Isaiah says that those two threats will be disposed of very quickly. And so the book is dominated by the imminent threat of the Assyrian invasion, first of the northern kingdom and then eventually the southern kingdom. Uh, and then looking ahead after chapter 40 or so, looking ahead to the Babylonian captivity and the end of the captivity and the return. So that's the context. Uh, although Assyria isn't mentioned here, this sounds like a prophecy of the events that are actually uh, included and uh, recorded at the center of Isaiah. Chapter 29 begins with a threat of a siege. Uh, it begins with the threat that the Lord himself will besiege Jerusalem. And then that siege is broken. The Lord is going to intervene and scatter the enemies. This is, this is exactly what happens at the center of the book of Isaiah in the narrative portion about the uh, invasion of Sennacherib and the angel of death breaking that siege at night. The uh, city of Jerusalem is addressed as Ariel, a, for, a word that means lion of God, but also I think puns on uh, Har-El, uh, mountain of God, which would be both a name for Zion uh, or Moriah, the mount, the Temple Mount, could also be a name for uh, the altar. So that um, that lion city is being besieged, and the Lord is going to intervene and uh, redeem it. And the portion that's uh, uh, included for the reading for this Sunday is uh, Isaiah twenty nine verses eleven through nineteen, and that's in the context of this Assyrian threat, but it's really focusing on the the deafness uh, and the muteness, the dumbness of the, uh, of the people. Uh, because, they, because they haven't listened to the word of the Lord, the Lord is going to confuse their uh, speech and confuse them so they can't, they can't read the, uh, the words of the prophet will be like a sealed book. It's kind of an eye for an eye judgment that's, uh, that's uh, threatened against them. The sealing of the word of the book very much relates back to descriptions in Isaiah 6 and elsewhere of the insensibility of the people to the word of God. But then there's also here this emphasis upon their attempt to approach God in words. 
but just honoring God with lip service alone, whereas the heart is far from God. That connection between the heart and the word um, and the true residence of the heart, of the word within the heart. There's something about the character of the prophet, that the character of the prophet embodies this residence of the word within the heart mm -hmm. of the person of God. Likewise, the lip service contrasts with the lips of the prophet that have been purified. Mm -hmm. He lives among a people of unclean lips, and they approach God with this mere lip service, with their heart far from him, but he bears the word of God within his heart as a testimony against them. Yeah, that's uh, true of Isaiah. He's, he's a prophet whose lips have been purified. Um, there are prophets who don't speak with the word of the Lord in their hearts or with lips that have been purified. Uh, verse 10 talks about prophets who uh, have shut their eyes. That seemed, uh, the ver Verse 9 uh, talks about blind and drunk men. They stagger, but not with strong drink. They become drunk, not with wine. The Lord has put this spirit of stupor on them, and that seems to be a description of the of the prophet. So Isaiah, like other prophets in the history of Judah and Israel, Isaiah is kind of a lone voice with his purified lips, and he's become a, 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 a one who can speak the words of fire, the words of the Lord, which are like fire, because his lips have been purified by the coal. But that's not true of all of the uh, all of the prophets at the time. The description of their relationship to God very much is a sort of parroted. Commandments of men mm -hmm. is no seed of the word in their hearts. It's a, a hollow thing. And I find the, the commandment taught by men, this is, these are words that Jesus takes up mm -hmm. later on in mm -hmm. the passage that we read in Mark. That description, um, how do you think we can... Um, how do we think we can unpack this in terms of the, the new covenant emphasis upon the word written in the heart? There's a promise already in Deuteronomy that the Lord will circumcise the hearts of Israel. Uh, there's a demand and a, uh, and a promise that uh, there will be the Torah will be written on their hearts. But that does come into its fullness with the gift of the Spirit. Uh, thinking Second uh, Corinthians three where the Spirit writes now not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. So there is a, there is a, a kind of interiorization of the, of the Word of the Lord that uh, is the fulfillment of the promise. What that does is doesn't eliminate the need for the external Word. The external Word is still there. You still need to receive it through your ear. Um, the ear is the gateway for the Word to come into your heart. But what um, the Spirit does is uh, heal the kind of schizophrenia that Israel uh, that Israel suffers. The schizophrenia between the people identified by the word who uh, can't read it or the people who uh, whose hearts, who speak with their mouths but their hearts are far from God. The, the Spirit works to make us, to integrate us, to make us integrated wholes. I think for me the striking thing is that these are the sorts of verses that Christ goes to in order to present the state of the people of Israel. That's it is the, the language within which he articulates his mm. indictment of mm. Israel mm -hmm. and also implicitly frames the promise of what he's going to bring. Right. Yeah, which, which also uh, we're anticipating the gospel lesson, uh, but uh, I think you bring in the whole context of Isaiah 29. It's not just that Jesus sees an analogy between the 
lip service that the people of Isaiah's day pay and uh, to God and the lip service that the Pharisees pay. There's that analogy. But there's also the, the same threat looms over both of them. Uh, the reason why the city is besieged at the beginning of Isaiah 29 is because of Israel's hearts are distant from the Lord because of the hypocrisy of their speech and their action. And you have the same kind of looming threat over the Jews in Jesus' time. So the whole context gets transferred over to the New Testament. And when Jesus brings up these warnings and, and these, uh, this uh, condemnation, this denunciation of the Pharisees, he's bringing that whole, that whole setting into, into play. The relationship between the potter and the clay yeah. is clearly a, a, it's a metaphor that Paul uses in Romans 9. Mm-hmm. But here it has a particular force, I think, which can maybe help us to think about the way that Paul uses it. The relationship between the potter and the clay seems to be an active, ongoing relationship in history. It's not this vessel being preformed, but rather this struggle between, this futile struggle between the clay and the potter, the clay speaking back to the potter, mm-hmm. um, who in the middle of history and is working out its destiny, whether it will be a vessel for wrath or a vessel for honor. And Israel's destiny, in Israel's destiny, its very rebellion is part of this engagement with the potter. Mm-hmm. The same, you have the same kind of, the same use of the potter imagery in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel brings it up. Uh, part of the part of the analogy is that the potter can restart the pot. He can he can destroy uh, a pot that's gone wrong on the wheel, and he can start over with another lump of clay and, and uh, make something else. So that that uh, fits with your point that this is talking about an ongoing process. Uh, ultimately, in the background here, you got these analogies of the Lord and Israel. Lord is the potter for his people, but that's ultimately an Adamic Edenic analogy. Uh, Adam was the first. Uh, potted man uh, made from the dust of the ground uh, and uh, made as a vessel to, to bear the Lord's glory in Israel is now that new Adamic people is, is called to do the same thing. Uh, but when they rebel, the Lord uh, threatens to take them back to the formless emptiness that uh, preceded the creation and then begins to reform them. And there seems to be a, a contrast being drawn here between people who are seeking to hide their plans mm. from the Lord. Mm. But the fact that God has hidden his, the sealed book um, or his vision as a sealed book to Israel. We, we shouldn't uh, move on before uh, we note the, uh, the upturn that we get uh, within the passage that we have uh, for the reading. Beginning verse 17, is not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile, fertile field will be considered a forest. And on that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book. And out of the gloom, the darkness, uh, and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. So there's a promise that those who are deaf to the word are going to be able to hear it. Those who are blind to God are going to be able to see. Uh, and that's going to be a, involve a restoration of the land, a restoration of Eden. So the devastation that begins the chapter is not the end of the story, that, uh, nor, nor even is the uh, denunciation of their blindness and their deafness. That's not the end of the story because the Lord is going to come as the the healer of the blind and the deaf. I, I was uh, particularly uh, found uh, verses 20 and 21, again, outside of our the specific passage, I found it uh, uh, a noteworthy, worth noting, especially verse 20, the ruthless will come to an end, the scornal will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil should be cut off. So that's part of the promise of restoration that the Lord is going to remove these. 
But the, the two categories of people who will be removed are people who are worthless and the scorner. You know, translate those into politicians and comedians. <laughs> <laughs> um, politicians who ruthlessly pursue power, who uh, don't care for serving the people, but serve only their, their own, uh, aggrandizing their own, their own power base. And the scorners who do nothing but uh, cynically condemn and criticize the world around them. Those two are corrosive of Israel's uh, life as a people. And those are the ones that can be removed as Israel's, Israel's restored. Uh, so, as I said at the beginning, uh, Mark 7 quotes from this passage, uh, particularly the, uh, Jesus claims that the Pharisees of his time um, fit the description of Isaiah 29, Mark 7, verse 6. Jesus says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrine, the precepts of men. The context is a purity rule. The Pharisees, as Mark explains fairly elaborately, the, the Pharisees are obsessed with purity, obsessed with cleansing themselves, obsessed with cleansing their pots and pans and so on. Um, that's part of a, an overall uh, agenda for Israel, as, uh, as uh, N.T. Wright and others have pointed out, uh, that the Pharisees want to... Uh, they're looking for the restoration of Israel. They think of themselves as still being, in some sense, in exile, and they're looking for the Lord to redeem them and bring them to the bring in the fullness of His promises. Um, and they believe that in order to in order to be uh, marked out as the as the true Israel, the people that the Lord will redeem, they need to keep these purity laws. They need to create these boundaries of purity that uh, separate them from the sinners, uh, common Jews or non-Pharisaical Jews who, when the Lord comes and redeems Israel and condemns his enemies, the Pharisees will be the ones that will be left standing. They'll be the pure ones. This isn't simply a, an obsession with the minutia of religious life. It's connected with their eschatology. It's connected with their understanding of Israel, Israel's place in history, uh, the eventual uh, redemption of Israel, their, their, the particular practices of purity uh, link up with this much broader view. And that relationship between those minutiae of the law and the commandment of God that they nullify reminds me of Matthew 23, the description of the greater things of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, that these are things that you must attend to without neglecting these smaller things. But the tithing of mint, anise, and cumin is very much secondary. Mm. And there is a sort of grammar of the law here, mm. the core commandments, the core principles, mm. justice, mercy, and faith, the two great commands. And Jesus' teaching concerning the law is very much driven by this deeper sense of the law, not just as a body of isolated commandments, mm -hmm. 600 odd commandments, that you must obey each single one of them. But there is a a logic and a structure to this mm -hmm. and the weight of the law falls in particular places and then things arise out of that whether that's the work of mercy in getting the animal out of the ditch on the sabbath day or whether it's um, acts of mercy for people in need or whether it's something like the way that you relate to these small little details mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in his challenge of the pharisees and and others his challenge is not necessarily that they had do these small things, but that the core 
purpose of the law is nullified in the process. Right. Yeah, I think the, the way you stated it is, is exactly right, that it's not, in fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 23, this you should have done. You should have paid attention to tithing, proper tithing. Uh, but in doing that, you shouldn't neglect the weightier matters. And it's, it's a matter of how you approach those smaller details of the law. It's not a matter of uh, whether you do them or not. I've been working it through the Ten Commandments in preparation for a little book on the Ten Commandments and uh, recently been thinking about the Fifth Commandment. And uh, Patrick Miller, in his book on the Ten Commandments, argues that the Fifth Commandment is addressed in the first instance to adults rather than to young children. That makes contextual sense. You have all of Israel's listening at Sinai, but the Lord is not ignoring the uh, several hundred thousand adults that are in the in the audience when he when he first speaks the ten words. It's one of the one of the clues that there's a link between that that, that the uh, uh, honor your parents commandment is about is a, addressed to adult children in the first instance. One of the one of the clues to that is the way that it's sometimes linked up with uh, commandments about caring for orphans and widows and other and strangers. So. Uh, Ezekiel 22 links up despising parents with neglecting the orphan and the widow and the stranger, as if they were, these were kind of a clump of concerns rather than really distinct concerns. And the, and the import seems to be that you know the way that the way that parents are being dishonored in that case is that they're not being cared for by their adult children. So uh, when Jesus condemns them for condemns the Pharisees here for neglecting the commandment of God, he's um, it's potentially, we're not talking about a kind of secondary application of the fifth commandment, but we're talking about the primary, th- they've, they've rejected the primary thrust of the commandment, which is honor your parents by caring for them when they are helpless and when they need protection. It's worth bearing in mind also when we see Jesus' reference to the death penalty for the child who curses father and mother, that this isn't the young child, but throughout the Gospels, right. the son that's envisaged is the son who's working with his father, the son who takes care of his mother in, his old a- in her old age, the son who represents the father's authority, the son who learns his father's business, the son who mm-hmm. has a wedding feast prepared, prepared for him. Mm-hmm. It's not really until adulthood that someone enters into sonship in Galatians 4. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from mm-hmm. our social mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. of sonship. Mm-hmm. So it's worth as we come to this text, keeping that background very firmly in mind. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the way that Jesus expresses the relationship between the commandment of God and the Pharisees' pursuit of their own tradition. That it's not just they get around the commandment of God and preserve their own tradition, but getting around the commandment of God seems to be in order to, for for the purpose of preserving their tradition. Rather than preserving their tradition in order to get around the Word of God? Yes. But also that they get around the Word of God because of their valuing of their mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. That that is something that is for the, that cause that they do it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I hadn't taken that so much. Uh, you're looking at verse 13, I guess, in yes. particular, or... Oh, oh, verse 9. Verse, yeah. verse 9. You set aside the command of God in order to keep your tradition. So the purpose of setting aside the commandment is to preserve the tradition. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very interesting. I, I, my my superficial thought would have been that 
not that the not that the goal was the preservation of the tradition, but the that you per, that the I guess the effect of preserving it is uh, to to uh, uh, nullify the commandment. But there does seem to be an intention clause there in verse nine that you want to hold and protect the tradition, and in order to keep that tradition of practice and interpretation, you have to ignore the demands of God's word in order to preserve that. Yeah, that's um, very interesting. It goes to the uh, kind of a fundamental, the fu- fundamental moral uh, antithesis between human authority and divine authority. If you're going to preserve human authority, you have to set aside and marginalize the commandment of God, and vice versa. If you're going to acknowledge the commandment of God, that's going to shatter human traditions and human authorities. You won't be able to preserve that uh, in the face of God's commands. Elsewhere, he challenges um, the Pharisees' treatment of issues like divorce mm. and their. Uh, Um, unfaithfulness on that issue. Why do you think it's this particular commandment that he brings forward? Do you think it's just a random instance, or do you think there's something particular about the relationship between father and mother as the source of true tradition and their preservation of a false tradition? Well, I think that that would be be one level of it. The other other thought I have, uh, I I had, uh, is the Working on the Ten Commandments, one of the kind of guiding insights has been that the Ten Commandments are addressed to, grammatically, they're addressed to a singular person. They're in the second masculine singular. Thou shalt not commit adultery on your, on your father and mother, but that's directed, as it were, to a single person. And I think that's because the Lord is addressing, in the first instance, uh, Israel as, a, as the corporate son. And in that case, the command to honor your father and mother takes on this... Um, this this first table kind of connotation. It's not just about honoring human authorities, but Yahweh is addressing Israel as father and urging and uh, commanding them to uh, to honor their divine father. So if they're if they honor the honor their father with their lips, their divine father with their lips, but their hearts are far from them, then that's a quite direct violation of this commandment. That would be one uh, another angle on it. But I, I think you're probably right that you have a contrast of different sources of tradition. And beyond that, there's a, a duty of the child to prepare or provide for their parents in their old age. Anything that I might have used to help you as Corban dedicated to God, that, that negation of that particular commandment is in order that they might serve their own coffers. Mm-hmm. But that challenged the structure of the family mm-hmm. in service of their tradition. I wonder how this can help us to maybe unpack Jesus' own teaching, which seems to challenge the family in mm. supposedly similar ways. Mm-hmm. How would this counteract a false reading of that? Mm. Um, I'm thinking this through at the moment. I'm not sure how best to word it. I don't have a, I don't have a, a good formulation of that. I, d- I do think uh, the point you made from verse 11, that the, uh, the excuse that they give for neglecting care of their parents is that it's the wealth that they would have given to their parents has been devoted to God. Uh, as, as often is the case, Jesus is penetrating the pious veneer of the Pharisees, and uh, not just Pharisees, every, the, the Pharisee that is each one of us, <laughs> uh, where we use, uh, we could say the same thing about preserving the tradition. They're preserving the tradition because it's a sacred tradition, because it's, uh, it's handed down from Moses through the fathers. It's, Ultimately, from God, they would say, 
Uh, and so there's a there's a there's a uh, uh, an element of piety that they're using to defend that, but Jesus is penetrating through that and putting their uh, shining the light and the and exposing the uh, the hypocrisy of those uh, of those apparent pieties. Um, let's turn to the final text. I'll leave some of those questions hanging in the air. Uh, the final passage is uh, Ephesians five verses twenty two to thirty three, which is uh, I imagine a passage that you've spent a lot of time with of. Uh, in in recent years, um, just a, a couple of uh, general comments that uh, follow up on things we've been saying about Ephesians throughout. Um, and this is a kind of a schematic understanding of the way uh, Ephesians is ordered, but it gets at something that's that's really in the text. You have a a description and uh, a uh, elaboration of the gospel in the early part of the book. And then beginning in chapter 4, he begins to exhort the Ephesians to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling that they've received, to live in a manner that's consistent with the gospel that they have, they believe and profess. Uh, and that involves cultivation of various kinds of virtues and habits, also involves uh, certain kind of, uh, a certain kind of family structure, family relations. Uh, beginning of chapter 6, Paul repeats the commandment, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. There are commands to slaves, and there's a, a instruction to wives uh, and husbands in the center of that. One question I'd have for you, two questions I have for you, uh, since you've been putting uh, time into this passage. Uh, how do you take the connection between the mutual subjection, verse 21, and the uh, subjection that uh, Paul calls the wife to in the uh, last, latter part of the chapter? That's one question. The other, a lot of debate about how headship should be understood in this passage. And I wonder if you have a have a firm conclusion on that. Yes, the first one is the fact that in verse twenty one supplies the verb for what follows. It's not actually within verse twenty two, and that particular statement, submit to one another in Christ. This, I think, is the head for a number of the things that follow, not just in the relationships between husband and wife, but also between children and parents, and between. Um, servants and their masters, mm -hmm. that these relationships are held under that. Mm -hmm. Yet they have a different character. There is a different character in the relationship between children and parents, slaves and masters, and husband and wife. And in those different species of relationship, all of them come under our, the general posture of putting others before ourselves. But yet there is an asymmetry there. And I think that reference specifically refers to the wife to the husband in a way that it is not used in the same way of the husband in relationship to the wife. Mm. And so there is a giving way of both parties to each other, but the term submission, I think, applies most specifically to the relationship of the wife to the husband. And you could make, you could make um, and I know these are controversial, but you can make Trinitarian analogies. I will make Trinitarian analogies without getting into the question of the eternal subordination of the Son. But at least in, in the incarnation, the interaction between the Father and the Son, the Son submits to the Father. Uh, and in some sense, there's a mutual submission. Certainly the Father is glorifying the Son as the Son glorifies the Father. But there's still a structure there. They're not simply interchangeable. Um, the Father is still the Father. The Son is still the Son. And there's a there's, as you said, an asymmetry to the, to, the, to the mutuality of that relationship. And even when we're thinking about relationships between human 
parents and their children. There is a putting of the children before you, their well-being and their interests that takes precedent over your getting your way. And so there is always that, talk about as a certain reciprocity and mutuality, even within that asymmetrical relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so a, the sense of a unilateral control over the other is certainly not in view here. But yet that asymmetrical relationship is important to understand. As you talked about headship, I think it's helpful to go back, just take the example of Genesis 2. The relationship there, headship, is not something that's primarily directed towards the woman, but rather it's directed towards the, the world more generally. And we see this, I think, earlier in Ephesians with the relationship between Christ and the church, that Christ is the head of the church in Ephesians 1, but he's given us head to the church for the benefit of the church, but that headship is primarily seen in his relationship to the wider creation, the principalities and powers, the rulers of this age, but that is something that he exercises for the well-being of his bride, his people. And likewise, the duty of the husband is not here described in terms of husbands exercise authority over your wives. That's not what's said. Rather, the husband, as the head of the wife, is the one who exercises authority for her sake. And that exercising of authority is more generally out into the world. The way that it actually describes and the illustration of the relationship between the husband and the wife is quite startling. The language that is used doesn't seem like a very manly thing to do, to um, prepare a bride for her wedding. This washing and this preparing and dressing. It is not what you'd think of as a very manly thing to do, it's an expression work. of manly authority. It's work for a bridesmaid, huh? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yet there's something about that sort of service that is fitting and that might draw to mind the relationship of Christ with his disciples as he illustrates the sort of authority that the cross represents in washing their feet. I hadn't heard that way of putting the, the uh, command to the husband. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense of the movement of the book of Revelation where the work of Christ is seen as the preparation and glorification of the bride. There's the, that's the, the large arc of the book of Revelation, preparing her for her wedding day. And he's the one who's, uh, who's doing that glorifying and uh, clothing and cleansing. It's also worth noticing that this is framed not just by the original creation, but by Christ and the church, by the age to come, by the marriage supper of the Lamb. Mm -hmm. And that relationship helps us to see marriage not just as something of this age, but as something that bears the treasure of the age to come, bears a witness to that. Mm -hmm. And I think we have it elsewhere in Paul's teaching on sexuality, about relationship between husband and wife, that it is something that's framed by the new age, not just by the original creation order. And at points where he might we would think, make immediate resource, recourse to natural law and the original creation order, he actually moves our attention to the age to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a reference to creation, uh, to Genesis 2 in verse 31. Uh, but even that is taken up into saying that into the mystery. He's talked about the mystery before, which is the mystery revealed in Christ. And even his reading of Genesis 2 seems to be a Christological one. Uh, when, he's, when he's quoting 
Genesis 2, he's still, still speaking about Christ and the church. So that even creation has this built-in trajectory toward the eschaton. Do you have any thoughts on how his reference to the mystery at this point relates to his extensive discussion of mystery elsewhere in the book? Well, the, in the early part of the book, particularly in chapter 3, the, the mystery is the unveiling of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church. It's the, uh, the breaking down of the dividing wall and the, the fact that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jews of all the promises of God. So um, it would, there would, at least at a, a very general conceptual level, it makes sense that uh, uh, you could describe the union of Christ and his church, uh, the union of Christ and his full body, the bride, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. That's another manifestation of the mystery. Uh, there may be a more intricate way of seeing the connection, but at least there's that much. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.